morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to share God's Word with us this morning. Today we're concluding our series in Psalm, and next Sunday we'll begin our Missions Month. Would you please give your attention to the reading of God's Word, Psalm chapter 77. I'm going to read the entire psalm. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord's burn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of God. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, as we turn to your word, as we look at Psalm 77, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Maybe this morning they have a lot of fear, doubt, and grief. I pray that those would be supplanted with faith, hope, and love, and peace in Christ Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read that Taylor Swift, she writes more breakup songs than any other artist. I don't know if that's true, but I read that 44% of her singles are breakup songs. And I actually think that that's maybe why she's the mega star that she is, because she's speaking into this near universal experience of breakups and heartache. And what she's doing is giving vocabulary and a voice to people's suffering. And there's something so powerful about that, that when you're going through a hard time, sometimes we don't have words to express what we're going through. But when you listen to that song or you hear somebody else talking and you resonate with that, it's incredibly powerful. 44% of her singles are breakup songs. I thought that was really interesting because 42% of the psalms are psalms of lament. And I wonder, did Taylor Swift just stumble across this biblical ratio of human experience? God included 42% of laments in the psalm. And I think that says something. God who is perfect and he knows all things, he knew that in his word that his people would need Yes, psalms of thanksgiving and praise. But the fact that God included 42% of laments in the psalms 
says that he knows what our human experience will be like in a sinful, fallen, broken world, that you will go through seasons of suffering and trial and hardships. Asaph says in verse 4 that I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He is at a loss for words because of the suffering that he is enduring. And I believe that in this psalm, God is giving our suffering through Asaph a voice and vocabulary. I pray that this morning you would find healing and peace and understanding what God is up to in your life. And I also want you to know that there is nothing wrong with grieving. Grieving is not a deficit of faith. Even prolonged periods of grief and suffering doesn't mean you're a bad Christian or that you're doing something wrong. I used to feel that way at times. Asaph talks about his suffering as a day of trouble. And by day, he's not talking about a literal 24-hour day. The word day can mean a prolonged season. It could be years, and the grammar supports that. One commentator says that for Asaph, this is no passing sorrow. This is a prolonged season of distress and anguish and trouble. I want us to resonate with Asaph this morning, but not just sit in our grief. As Christians, there's nothing wrong with grieving. There are so many laments in Scripture. We are encouraged to grieve. It's healthy to grieve. But as Christians, we don't just grieve, but we grieve with hope. We do suffer, but we suffer with faith. And it's my prayer that in this psalm, we will express grief and also have eyes of faith to see what God is doing, to have peace in his sovereignty and in his providence. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is that faith is tested in days of trouble. Like I said, Asaph, we don't know exactly what he's facing, but he calls it a day of trouble, and it is a long, prolonged season of anguish and distress. Not all of our sorrows will be passing in this life. Some of our sorrows will be passing. Some of our hardships will be passing. But it's very possible that whatever you're going through right now, you might go through it the rest of your life, all the way up until you enter glory. That's the kind of anguish Asaph is in. He's wondering, how long is this going to last? Nothing is working. He says his soul refuses to be comforted. In verse 4, he says, you hold my eyelids open. Who is this you? He's talking about God. He's saying, God, you're the reason I can't sleep at night. He's not blaming God, but he is acknowledging that God is sovereign, and therefore he is involved in his suffering in some way. Like many of us understand, God is sovereign, and he can't sleep at night because he has this dilemma. If God is sovereign and if he is good, why am I going through what I'm going through for such a long period of time? And why isn't God answering me? And why is he so silent? And that's why he can't sleep at night. It's because of God. In verse 5, he tries to make sense of things. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Verse 6, I said, let me remember my song in the night. 
It's like you're going through your Christian playlist of praise songs and you're looking at titles like Good, Good Father, How Great Thou Art, How Great Is Our God. And that's what Asaph is doing. He's going through his playlist of praise songs. But it's not helping because those titles don't make any sense to him. What do you mean, good, good father? What do you mean, how great thou art? What do you mean, gracious king? And he's losing sleep over this because those songs, those praise songs, aren't helping him at all. It's like when you tell a kid after you watch a movie, oh, that's just a movie. People aren't like that in real life. That doesn't, that doesn't really happen in real life. Those are just praise songs. God isn't like that in real life. We just sing those songs at church. Asaph's faith is troubled and it's challenged. He's going through a crisis of faith and we're seeing this real time. He asks a, a bunch of questions with, which maybe you have asked at some point when you're going through a hard time. The first is this, does prayer work? In verse 2, he says, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. He's trying to be a good Christian. In this season of hardship, he's praying. He's praying a lot. He's crying out to God. And his soul refuses to be comforted. It's not that he doesn't want to be comforted. It's not comforting. It's not working. The second question that he asked, did God forget? I remember when I was in middle school in the summers, my mom would drop my sister and I off at the library for hours while she would run errands. She wanted, it to take us, she wanted us to take advantage of two things, the books and the air conditioning. And there, were, there would be times my mom would not return at the time that she said she would. And... You know, up to 30 minutes past the time that she said she would come, my sister and I would just think, she's just late. But after an hour passes, two hours, my sister and I would start to think, she forgot about us. The longer our suffering, we start to think, did God just forget about me? Maybe up to a certain point, a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month, we're like, okay. I know God is good. I know he's up to something. He must be refining my faith. He must be teaching me some lesson. Maybe we're optimistic about this trial. Months turn into years, maybe. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. And Asaph has reached a point, and maybe you've reached a point where you just think, maybe he just forgot about me. And what makes it harder is that during that time, you see God working in other people's lives, their lives being changed. You're seeing healing. You're seeing people getting jobs, getting married, having kids. And you're wondering, God must have forgot about me. Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? He's also wondering, is God angry with me? Verse 9, has he in anger shut up his compassion? He reached a point where he concludes, okay, the only explanation here for so much suffering in my life, I must have messed up. 
This is payback for something I've done in the past. My sins have piled up so much. My guilt has piled up so much. God is simply getting back at me. He's mad at me. It sure feels like he's angry. And lastly, Asaph is wondering, why is God silent? Nancy Guthrie, she wrote a book on grieving. She says that those who are grieving, they're so acutely aware of those who acknowledge their loss and grief and those who have not. She says one of the most hurtful things that somebody could do for those who are grieving is to say nothing. It hurts when your coworkers and peers, fellow church members are silent. She understands that loss makes a lot of people uncomfortable. A lot of people think, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I just won't say something at all. And Nancy Guthrie, she says, there is no perfect thing to say. That doesn't exist. Even if it did exist, even if you said that, it wouldn't fix their grief instantaneously. What people who are grieving want is for you to acknowledge it and to enter their hurt and to let them know that they are not alone. Silence compounds that grief and suffering and actually adds to it. Asaph wants God to say something. Not necessarily to even fix his problem. Can God just say something and just let him know he's present, that he's there, and that Asaph is not alone? Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable. The word spurn means forsaken. Asaph feels deserted by God and he is alone. David felt this way in Psalm 22. My God, why have you forsaken me? And David describes his feeling of forsakenness in Psalm 22 too. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Whenever God does not answer, it feels like we're forsaken. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, he wrote about his experience of faith, crisis of faith after he lost his wife to cancer. He says this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? You may as well walk away. You may as well turn away. I think Asaph is this close to turning away in the first nine verses, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Maybe you're this close to turning away from God as well, and I want to encourage you, don't. Plead with you, don't. At verse 9, Asaph, he's kind of at a fork in the road. Is he going to turn away from God or to God? Verse 10 is the turning point in this psalm. 
I pray that as we look at this turning point, that it may be a turning point maybe in your faith in this season in your life. Let's look at the turning point, the second point. God's character and his record is the turning point. In verse 10, Asaph calls God most high. I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the most high. Most high is actually a Canaanite term, Elion, that they use to describe their top god. A lot of us are familiar in the Bible with the Canaanite god Baal, but Elion was actually their highest god, their supreme god. And Asaph and the Israelites, they borrowed this term and they applied it to God because it was one way for them in their context to understand how God is not distant from us. Most high is not about God's distance, but it's about his difference, his difference from the other Canaanite gods, his difference from the way people operate. Canaanite gods were fickle. You couldn't trust them. It was a roll of the dice. You never really knew why they acted the way that they did. And if it wasn't raining, if you weren't having kids, if there were no crops, you must have done something wrong. And you never knew what that was. Year after year, season after season. In the first nine verses, maybe Asaph is coming to the realization, all of those questions... He's treating God like he's one of the Canaanite gods who do forsake, who do forget, who are silent, who don't really care about you and don't really love you. And they do get mad and they do get angry and they will punish the Canaanites. And here in verse 10, it's the turning point. Asaph is realizing, wait a minute, no, God is the God most high. He is unlike all of those other gods. It's like if you applied the rules of baseball to soccer, you would be really confused, lost. If you apply the attributes of Canaanite gods or your other belief systems or other people or your own parents to what you think God is like as your father, you're going to be really lost, and you're going to be really confused. No, God is not like that. He is most high. Well, God is great like our God. That's what Asaph says in verse 13. To think that God has changed, to think that he's angry or has forsaken or forgotten him, is to think that God is like us. People change. People are unreliable. God is not. Yes, God is unpredictable. That's true. None of us know what God has in store for us today, tomorrow, next year. God is unpredictable, but he's consistent. His ways are unpredictable, but his character is consistent. And that's why we are able to face suffering with faith and hope. That's how we're able to have peace, even in the worst seasons of our lives. It's the consistent character of God. Verse 11, Asaph says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. 
I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Asaph is able to face the present and not fear the future because of what God has done in the past, his track record. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about the deliverance out of Egypt and God leading the Israelites through the Red Sea, obliterating Pharaoh's army. For we, as Christians, where do we look? We also look to the past, not to the Red Sea, but we look to the cross. There we see what Paul says in Romans 8. If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will we not also with him graciously give us all things? What Paul is doing there, he's using an a fortiori argument, which is a fancy way of saying a greater to lesser argument. And let me explain this first by giving you an example of a lesser to greater argument. A lesser to greater argument. Let's say you have a kid named Johnny. If Johnny can't take care of his pet goldfish, then it stands to reason that you can't trust him to take care of a pet dog. Lesser to greater argument. An a fortiori argument is the greater to lesser. That's what Paul is doing. If Johnny can take care of a pet dog, then it stands to reason you could trust him to take care of a pet goldfish. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then it stands to reason you can trust him with everything else in your life. If God did not spare his own son, you can trust God with your life, with your health, with your marriage, with your finances. I know that those aren't small things, but when you look at what God has given you, the biggest thing, the best thing, his own precious son, he's trustworthy. It stands to reason that he's proven he loves you and he cares for you. That he has taken all of your sin that separates you from him and by his free grace invited you to be one of his children. And he has prepared for you, already prepared for you, everlasting life. A life with him. Joy, perfect blessedness, and happiness. We look back to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And we have to look at that with eyes of faith. And there we can trust the promises of God and know that he is for us, as Paul says in Romans 8. In the response song that we're going to sing, there's one line that says, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. That sums up Asaph's line of thinking and logic. God, I don't know what you're doing, in my life right now, but I know what you've done. And therefore, he can proceed with peace and faith <clears throat> and hope. The third point, God's path. Asaph teaches us that God's path is through the sea, not around it. Asaph reflects on God's salvation, delivering the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea, one of the most dangerous things you could do at that time is a river crossing at night. Nobody attempted it. It was so dangerous. What about a sea crossing at night? 
I don't think the movies really depict this, but if you read Exodus, they actually crossed the Red Sea at night. And that would have been the most dangerous thing anyone could possibly attempt. And here's the interesting thing. God led them to the Red Sea, and then he waited there for to become night, so he added to the danger. And then he also waited for Pharaoh's army to catch up, multiplying the danger. You can imagine how fearful and scared the Israelites were. And they said, are there no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? God set that all up. He knew exactly what he was doing. Could he have led them around the Red Sea during the day? Could he have not allowed Pharaoh's army to catch up? Of course. Could God have led you or your family member around cancer? Yes. Can God lead you around infertility? He can. Can God lead you around chronic pain and managing your health, financial loss, marital conflict and strife? Can God lead you around those things? He can. His way is through the sea at times. His timing and his way are going to freak you out and they're going to scare you. And you're going to cry out and wonder if God, did you make a wrong turn? I think you were supposed to make a left back there and you made a right instead. How are we in front of the Red Sea right now with Pharaoh's army right behind us? Mary said, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Could Jesus have avoided Lazarus' death? Of course. But Jesus tells Mary, so that God would be glorified. That God would be glorified. God will indeed be glorified in our suffering when we endure with faith. And not only is God glorified, it's not just all about him. He loves you and he's doing something good. And he could be doing so many different things. Maybe he's urging you to let go of the idols in your life, whatever that might be. Success, money, titles, comfort. Maybe God is trying to get you to let and release those idols. Maybe he's sanctifying your faith. Maybe he's disciplining you because of sins and he wants you to look more like Christ. He's teaching you something. But it's not without a purpose. Absolutely not. In verse 13, it's the key verse. Asaph says, your way, O God, is holy. It means whichever way God leads you in life, it is holy, meaning it is perfect. His path is perfect and his timing is perfect. However long that suffering is, it's not one second more or one second less than he ordains it to be for his purposes. His way truly is above our way, but we can trust him because he is holy. The fourth point and final point that Asaph teaches us is that we are children of Jacob and Joseph. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. This is the only instance that I could find in scripture of God's people being called the children of Joseph. 
I thought it was a bit unusual. But it makes sense given the context of this chapter. What is the story of Joseph? At the age of 17, his brothers wanted to kill him because they were jealous of him. Cooler heads kind of prevailed, and instead they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He's falsely accused by one of the most powerful men in Egypt by his wife saying that he attempted sexual assault. He's thrown into prison for years. It's finally released. Pharaoh's right-hand man has a lot of power. There's famine in the land, and so Joseph's brothers, who think that he's long gone, long dead, show up to Egypt for grain. They realize that this is Joseph. They're afraid. Joseph is going to exact revenge. But one of the most powerful verses in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. I think when Asaph is saying that we are children of Joseph, others may mean things for evil. Satan may mean it for evil. Whatever you're going through, however, God means it for good. You are children of Joseph. In other words, you are children of providence. You are children of providence. What is providence? It means there is no such thing as luck or chance or accidents in the Christian journey through this world. Everything is arranged and orchestrated by God who is working all things together for our good. Providence is sometimes called God's invisible hand. It's like in verse 19, Asaph says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. They couldn't see God, but it says that God was with them. His footprints were unseen. He was leading them through the Red Sea. I think the Heidelberg Catechism is so helpful in us understanding what providence is. Let me read this for you. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Providence means God is in control. It means that your pain is never wasted. It's never wasted. Suffering isn't because of providence. Suffering, it's not a mistake that God makes. It's a tool that God uses in our lives to destroy self-reliance, to train you in ways that you don't realize, to grow you in your faith, to use you to be a greater blessing to other people, maybe to put things into perspective, to look heavenward, The catechism said that with a view of the future, we can have a firm confidence. When we understand the providence of God, 
You can look to tomorrow with a firm confidence and the day after and the day after that because you know that one day, like we sang, you're going to be in heaven. You're going to be in heaven. Every tear wiped away, no pain. You're going to be the best version, resurrected, glorious version that you can possibly be. Your loved ones, whose maybe their, their health is declining right now, maybe your parents, they will be the healthiest, best version that they would ever be in heaven as well. Let me read and close here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says this, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Charles Spurgeon, he calls this the Christian's glorious inventory. All things are yours. Life and death. Death is yours. And you might be thinking, God, I don't want that. Why are you giving this to me? That's not a good gift. But God is saying, no, even death, he can use it for good and for his glory in your life. The word for world, that sounds kind of pleasant, actually. Yeah, I would kind of like to have this old world, but it's actually talking about the cursed, broken world. He's saying, this is all yours. And you might be thinking, I don't want something that's broken. But God is saying, I can even use the brokenness of this world and the fallenness of this world for your good in some way that maybe you don't understand, but this is all actually yours. It's your glorious inventory. Because you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. And you are a child of God. You are children of Joseph. Spurgeon says that when we understand that this is our glorious inventory, sick beds become thrones and slums become palaces. Let me just close with something else Spurgeon says. Everything that God does to his people is all love. Sometimes the love is a little disguised, but the love is always there. Let's pray. Father God, you love us with an everlasting love that's always there. Help us this morning with eyes of faith to see your invisible hand of providence, to understand our glorious inventory and how you are working good in our lives Give my grieving, hurting, and suffering brothers and sisters hope and mercy and trust, grace and patience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.